0: Welcome to On the Edge of Equity, where every episode features crucial conversations centered on equity, diversity, and inclusion. But this isn't just talking the talk. It's about inspiring action, asking tough questions, and getting honest answers. Because that's the only way that real change happens.
1: Hello, and welcome again to another edition of On the Edge of Equity. I have to start this podcast in particular with a number of expressions of gratitude for our listeners and client partners. Athena is entering its 14th year in business. And we have to express gratitude for all the people and organizations who've made us who we are. Day in and day out, I am hearing from friends and our listeners. You actually are listening to this podcast. I hear people talking about how impactful they are finding our discussions. And even though I believe that I've been put on this earth to be a change maker. This is not fully my doing or Athena's doing. It is because of you, our listeners and our guests who spend time with me in this studio committed to making themselves uncomfortable to have difficult, but necessary. Oh, so necessary conversations. So we dedicate our time on the edge of equity to take a deep dive into these conversations around equity, diversity, and inclusion with some of Milwaukee's top thought leaders. If you've been paying attention for the last three years, and I know you have because you've been tuning into this podcast, you've seen organizations big and small implementing this work into their mission and vision statements. We at Athena take it one step further with our Athena idea, which is inclusion, diversity, and equity in action, leveraging our proven track record of guiding organizations through the vital process of creating greater equity and inclusion, and, of course, communicating the benefits and strengths of those brands within the social context of social responsibility, and, of course, always action. And again, I say action. So I am so excited today to have in studio with me actually one of my favorite people on this planet. One of my favorite folks who has been both a friend, a supporter, a champion, someone who has been also a confidant and advisor, Corey Natos. Hey,
2: <laughs> good morning. <laughs> Thanks for having me with you.
1: I really, you know, I have said this to you in private and we've had these conversations before about what you have meant to me personally. Just the example, even as we were sharing before going on air this morning of your dedication and commitment to this city. Can you just talk a little bit about your passions and what makes you driven for this city that both of us have called home?
2: Yeah, you know, Milwaukee has a lot of challenges, particularly for African-Americans and for African-American men. And I was um, meeting yesterday one-on-one with a CEO who's uh, sort of new to our community. He's African-American. And uh, he was asking me a version of your question. And why is it that I'm engaged and so active in the community? And part of what I told him is, you know, I was of that generation of young African-Americans, particularly men where everyone said, graduate, leave, and don't ever look back. And all of my friends did, and I certainly intended to. And it was really just by God's grace that I kept having a series of opportunities that kept pulling me back to Wisconsin, back to Milwaukee. I ended up going to a college in Wisconsin when I planned to go to a Morehouse or an Ivy League out east. I was going to go to a law school out of Wisconsin. I got pulled back. I was going to take my first clerkship at a law firm outside of Wisconsin. I got pulled back. And it was just all of these opportunities, one after another, that were just so compelling. And it is an exceptional story, unfortunately, for black people in this town and for black men in this town in particular to have had the kind of success that I've had. And I don't say that to brag. I say that to lament how exceptional Mm -hmm. it is. Because I've been so fortunate, I have this great, strong moral obligation to sort of pay that forward. And what can I do every day to make my story, my outcome less exceptional, more common, more the norm. And when I look at the stuff that I'm doing in the community, having served on literally dozens of boards and nonprofits in this community, it's always focused on how do we make this less exceptional? How do we make this more the norm? And my wife and I both were born, you know, poor teen, single moms, me in Milwaukee, my wife in Gainesville. So we sort of know that journey, you know, we know where that story starts and we know how that story can progress. And, uh, for us, the difference was education Mm -hmm. and that became our theory of change. So, so much of what we do in terms of our volunteerism, in terms of our philanthropy is really focused on education. We call that our theory of change. So she and I are both deeply engaged in this community because we have a moral obligation to do that, Mm -hmm. uh, to pay forward, you know, our successes. And we focus primarily on education because we know that's a game changer for people in our community, particularly poor black people. That's the game changer.
1: Yeah. You lift the motto, that I really live by, which is to whom much is given. Absolutely, Much is required, Absolutely. that moral imperative Absolutely. to do. What I didn't open up this conversation, I'm just, you know, I'm just going to let the people know just yeah. just a few little things sure. about Mr. Corey Nettles. Uh-oh. <laughs> And that is a little bit of your background. And I certainly want you to share, but you do have a background in law, serving as a secretary for the Wisconsin Department of Commerce. Back in 2007, you founded Generation Growth Capital, where you serve as the managing director. And a lot of that work is around private equity as a private equity fund. As you have mentioned, dozens of boards well respected in this community. What keeps you motivated through all of that work that you are doing and have been doing?
2: Yeah. You know, impact. It's all about impact and having this sense of urgency about the importance of doing that. As I'm growing older, I have this greater sense of urgency Mm. and we all have only so much time to really truly make a meaningful difference. And, you know, when I'm over at our, at our charter high school, Dr. Howard Fuller collegiate Academy, and I look in the eyes of those young boys and those young girls, you know, I certainly see myself Mm -hmm. reflected back and I'm just determined to do everything I can to make sure those folks have the opportunities to change their trajectories and to break cycles within their families. And, um, you know, I'm passionate about that. I'm singularly focused and and committed to that. Mm -hmm. And that's what motivates me and what drives me. And it's one of the first thoughts I have in the morning. It's one of the last thoughts I have at night is what can we do to accelerate and to advance? And I'm extremely impatient with the pace of change and impact. Yeah. I'm uh, impatient with mediocrity mm. when people show up that way in, in the advancement of our community and in, uh, in serving our community, particularly our kids. And I try to hold myself accountable to that. You know, I, I have to show up and, and try to always be my best self. Mm. I don't meet that goal, but I'm trying to be my best self. And I'm always saying, was I as productive as I w- was? I as efficient? Was I as impactful as I could have done? What could I have done to to be better, to be faster, to be deeper mm. in the impact, et cetera? So that's really what motivates me and drives me every day.
1: I want to stay there for a minute as you are talking about, and you alluded to this, the place that you have grown up, I think 8th and Burleigh, right? 13th. 13th.
2: Columbia, Columbia, actually right across from the park. The park was uh, right out the front door of my grandmother's house, which is where my consistent, you know, sort of residence for 40 plus years. My mom moved around a lot, mm-hmm. but my grandmama was there until I moved her out of that house. But 40 plus years on 13th in Columbia.
1: Wow. And I was thinking back, I knew it was on Burleigh. My great grandmother was off of 14th and center. Oh yeah. And so there's pockets. We too move quite yeah. a bit. For those of you who are not from Milwaukee, we We are talking about the north side of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and there's so many of us that can pull back on those roots. How much of that journey, having grown up with a grandmother who in that community has influenced your professional and personal journey? All of it. I
2: mean, it is totally it's the bedrock of sort of who I am, who my values are, or how I show up. I am so sensitive and you know, my grandmother had, you know, barely a sixth grade education and for the longest time after my wife and me had probably the highest net worth in the family, right? Mm-hmm. Because she taught us that important lesson that it's not what you make it's what you spend. And all of my values, that sort of north star, you know, I went to church at my grandmama's hip at New Hope Missionary Baptist Church. Pastor Ivy is still there is there. I'm still a member there. I'll be a member there certainly for as long as my my grandmother's on this side, but it's my values. And, you know, whenever I show up in places, I'm always attuned to uh, how other people in those places treat the so-called least of us. Mm-hmm. And because I'm always saying that could be my grandmother. And how are we showing up in terms of how I treat those folks, how other people treat those folks. And I'll step in in a minute when I see issues of race and class that are particularly affecting those people who are most disempowered. So it, it affects everything I do. You know, when I show up and when I sit in rooms, uh, it's not just my sympathy for them, but I had a grandmother and a mother who always said to me, you can do anything you want to do. You can go anywhere you want to go. You can be anything you want to be. And I will believe that, right? Yeah. So even when I sit in boardrooms, in corporate boardrooms, in places where the highest echelon of our community, of our country sit, I never have this sense of not belonging. Hmm. You know, I have a, never have a sense that I don't belong there, you know, that I'm an imposter or a, a supposer, or, you know, whatever. I just have this sense of agency that, you know, my grandmother and my mother sewed into me, you know, as a small boy mm-hmm. and cultivated over the course of my life. So, uh, uh, it is all of who I am and, you know, however blessed we've been financially, you know, our values uh, and our approach to life and approach to community and approach to family has not changed. Mm. You know, I have a big, sprawling family of crazy people, mostly <laughs> black women, crazy black women who I all love and adore. Okay, be careful now. Oh, Lord. Chloe. They, they know I'm speaking the truth that <laughs> they're listening to your podcast. I love and adore them. And, uh, that's my North Star. And, mm-hmm. you know, they keep me grounded. They help us have perspective. And, um, that's, that defines who I am. My wife's story is the same, basically. Yeah. And it really, it grounds us and it helps us keep it in perspective because, you know, in the corporate world, in the financial world, people get all swept up Mm -hmm. in the power and the more and more and more and more and more. And we just have this grounding about what really matters. And our value and our worth is not determined by the amount of our bank account. It's not determined by our titles. It's not determined by our positions. None of that defines who we are. Mm -hmm. And it was really those values that we both, my wife was raised by her grandmother, her grandmother and great grandmother as well. Similar story to mine. And, you know, we just have this sense of of what matters to us and what doesn't. And we're really clear about that. We're really comfortable in our own skin. We don't play somebody else's game. Mm -hmm. You know, we're running our own race and uh, we don't have any cognitive dissonance about that. We don't have any confusion about that. There's no identity crisis about any of that. Never has been. And God willing, never will be.
1: Corey, that's powerful. And it is making my brain go in a whole lot of (laughs) directions even the piece that you talked about, this, this idea of belonging, yeah. because it really is fundamentally rooted in values yeah. that your ancestors, yeah. you know, people that were invested in you as a young person and so much of the work, I think around number one, the challenging conversations around equity, but the action behind it is. There are oftentimes we feel like we don't belong. Yeah. And so our voice doesn't get activated. We yeah. don't take action as a result of that. What What do you tell people? What encouragement that will of understanding belonging that you would encourage others to to stay in the fight or get in the fight?
2: Yeah, you know, there's a lot of things. I mean, I, I my wife went to an, an HBCU, a historically black college and university, in uh in Tallahassee called um, FAMU, Florida Agricultural Mechanical University. Mm-hmm. And I didn't. I went the opposite direction. 180. I went to a small white liberal arts college in Northern Wisconsin called Lawrence University. I'm actually the chair of the board of directors at Lawrence right now, the trustees, and. Part of the power of that experience of of being at a white school as one of the few black people and living with these folks and showering with these folks and going to school with these folks and having dinner with these folks, with these white people, it, it sort of demystified for me, you know, the meritocracy myth. Mm-hmm. And so much when I say to to black people, to minority people, to women is... These folks aren't any smarter than you. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this whole constant barrage of images and messages of inferiority around race and around gender. And when you've lived closely with them, I've worked with some really brilliant white people. I've worked with some really stupid white people. I work with some really brilliant black people. I work with some really stupid black people. I work with some really brilliant women, some really brilliant men, and then some who are less so. So the first thing I try to tell folks is you're just as good as they are. You're just as smart as they are. And you got to have that sense of confidence, not overconfidence, because that's different, but the sense of confidence in, in who you are and what you know. And what all the data shows, what all the data shows is that equally qualified women and minorities end up with different outcomes because of racism or because of sexism, but also because of you know this own sense of inferiority and mm. and confidence, and it's even how we negotiate salaries, right? I have this mythical character, you know, a white, white guy who I call Jay Winthrop the Third. Jay Winthrop III will be mediocre at best and will go in and will negotiate like he's a rock star. Mm -hmm. An African-American woman will come in who will be a rock star and she will accept a mediocre compensation package. right? And that's about confidence. That's about agency. So part of what I say to folks is you've got to understand who and what the competition is. Mm -hmm. And when you're on the field and you understand who and what the competition is, you say, well, damn, I'm as good as that person is. So I can beat that person and I ought to get as much or more than that person gets. So, so much of it is that, but you got to start. From a place of confidence. I'll tell one other story. I'll try to get through it quickly about this sense of belonging and confidence and inferiority. There's a young black woman I knew here in Milwaukee, and I called her one day and I said, "What? Hey, what are you up to? What are you doing?" A young lady I was mentoring. She said, "I'm out at Red Lobster with my girls." Black woman. I said, Red Lobster? She said, yeah, we love seafood. I'm like, God, with all due respect, that stuff is terrible. <laughs> and uh, she's like, well, what do you mean? It's all she'd ever known. So I went and bought her a, um, a gift card to go to Harbor House, mm-hmm. one of the best seafood restaurants in Milwaukee, Absolutely. arguably in the country. The bar to a lot of families, one of the best restaurateurs you'll find. So she goes. She had three or four girlfriends. They all went. They had a great meal. And she came back, and she told me about that. And I was so happy to hear that. Fast forward, I called her a month or two later. Hey, where are you? What are you doing? I'm at Red Lobster. I said, Red Lobster? I said, what the hell are you doing at Red Lobster? And you just
1: got exposed to the Harbor House. <laughs> you got
2: exposed to the Harbor House. I said, why didn't you go back to Harbor House? She said, we just didn't feel comfortable there. Mm. We didn't feel like we belonged. I said, did somebody say something? Did somebody?" Because I know the people who own the Harbor House. I know the managers who manage the Harbor House. I am a regular. Corey Nettles and his family are regulars at the Harbor House. And it's clear to me, having been so exposed to that restaurant group, that this was about her and her inferiority and how she internalized that. And it wasn't about the way they treated her. So, you know, this is the thing that sort of just breaks my heart is that we don't have this sense of belonging. We don't have this sense of equality, not always because it's external, but because it's internal. Mm -hmm. And we've got to get over that, you know, as a community, if we're going to be successful.
1: That's so, so good. And so many lessons, um, I think that you've shared and, you know, I want to go to something that you lifted a little bit earlier, which is how much you love black women. Yeah. Let's see it. Yeah. You love black women. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> Cause I was raised, my grandmother had seven kids, six girls, one boy, yeah. uh, the oldest was a boy, my uncle who's, who since passed. And I came from a family of uh, pretty much all black women. Mm-hmm. They were in ways that I didn't appreciate you know, they were single black moms. Mm. And I have since, you know, in my adulthood as a black man, learned the good and the bad, mm. the bad of that. My heart hurts for the number of black women head of households. And Milwaukee has the largest percentage per capita in the country. And uh, my wife and I never had kids, but I got a ton of nieces, nephews, and God kids, mm-hmm. lots of them. And I know just the power of uh, having black men in families yes. uh, who show up as constructive brothers, fathers, uncles, granddaddies, goddaddies. Mm-hmm. And so I absolutely love and adore black women. Absolutely love and adore black women. But my heart is is heavy about the absence of black men and families. Yeah. And it's a huge loss as it relates to our black boys. Mm-hmm. But also there's a wealth of data on the importance of relationship between black girls and their black fathers, black men, uh, and how that then affects their relationships throughout life. So I absolutely love black women. I come from a strong family of Absolutely crazy black women, <laughs> who I love and adore, uh, but they're straight up crazy. I talked to my aunt. I was all giving the time. you an opportunity oh my God, for redemption. No, <laughs> no I, I'd be lying. And people who know my family know I would be lying. So, and what they love about me is I keep it real. But yeah, big, big, big fan.
1: Well, I have to lift up. I know you're number one um, black woman, and you have talked about her, Michelle Nettles. Uh, there is a word that doesn't just apply to anybody, and it is visionary. You are an incredible visionary, and both you and your wife, Michelle, who uh, is an executive at Manpower, serving as the chief people and culture officer, both of you are visionaries, right? And so there is one thing that I think I won't equate that our love is the same, but I'll just tell you that I know, we, the three of us, share a certain love and affinity for a man in an institution. And you all are right now, Michelle is serving as board chair of Dr. Howard Fuller Collegiate Academy. As you know, I am a proud supporter of Dr. Fuller's, and I'm a proud mom of an alum of HFCA. (laughs) The work that you and Michelle are doing is focused exclusively on Milwaukee's Black children and families. How, why have you undertaken? this incredible journey to support this institution and this man.
2: Yeah, so, you know, first and foremost, Michelle is a rock star. She's my better three quarters. She's well past my better half. I tell people I'm sort of Stedman to Oprah in this relationship with (laughs) all due respect (laughs) to Stedman. She's an amazing woman, amazing Mm -hmm. executive, amazing community leader. So this school started back in 2004 by Dr. Howard Fuller and uh, along with eight African-American pastors in Milwaukee, including my pastor, Pastor Archie Ivey, but several others. And the school's first home was actually in my church mm-hmm. at New Hope Missionary Baptist Church. And my pastor was a retired NPS principal, having served under Dr. Fuller. And his vision as a pastor was to launch a school connected to our church. Now, at the time, I was chair of the trustee board. So I'm kind of pretty close to the money and the finances. And being in the church business was hard enough mm-hmm. Then getting also into the school business. So I said, I'm good with leading leading a capital campaign for our church to build a school, but let's rent it out to another operator. Let's mm-hmm. not launch our own. And then lo and behold, this group of ministers and Dr. Fuller wanted to found a high school uh, serving led by African Americans serving African Americans. So it was the perfect marriage. So I literally have been involved since day one. Michelle, on her side, had been emerging executive at Miller Brewing Company, but also passionate about education, again, our theory of change. She left Miller to go start an education services nonprofit at Marquette with Dr. Howard Fuller. So they, on a parallel path, were establishing their personal and their professional relationship. Mm -hmm. Roll for several years, Michelle is on the board of the school, and for the last few years has been the chair of the board of the school. The school is today over on 29th and Capitol. It's in its third location. My church was the first. They had an intermediate location in a burned out Lutheran church over on like 38, 31st and Brown. And then they moved to 29th and Capitol on what was a former Goodwill uh, facility. And, you know, they've gotten really good outcomes with some of the most challenging students and families, but they've always had suboptimal facilities. So my wife, Michelle, started on this conversation with the board a few years ago about getting them better facilities. They looked at initially within their very limited resources, finding another sc- another building that they would adapt into a school and put bandages and rubber bands on and try to make it work. And then at one point, Michelle said, no, we're not doing that. Our kids deserve better. Uh, we're going to build something new because our kids deserve a nice. new state-of-the-art school to further enable their learning and their outcomes, uh, because I have served on so many capital campaigns and raised a bunch of money in town, she came to me and said, I need you to figure out how to raise the money to build us a new high school. And, you know, your wife comes to you with a honey-do list. She say, yes, dear, I'll get right on it. <laughs> uh, and I did. And at the time we were thinking it was going to be a $15 million campaign. I went around and recruited executive leaders from all across this community. We built a capital campaign cabinet of 23, 24, 25 rock stars, very diverse ethnically, generationally, public sector, private sector, just rock stars. Everybody we asked said yes to joining the cabinet. Our $15 million goal became a $20 million goal. Our $20 million goal became a $25 million goal. And this cabinet has just overperformed. Part of the reason it's been so successful is that Dr. Howard Fuller uh, is a national icon and a national treasure. And as well as he is regarded here, you know, a prophet is never fully well regarded in his homeland. He has a national brand and a national following. Halloween. And as I look at the tens of millions of dollars that we've raised now, a significant amount of that has come from outside of Wisconsin, just in reflection of Dr. Fuller's brand. Uh, he turned eighty one a couple weeks ago. He looks as good, is going as as strong and That's has as much amazing. energy as I've ever known him to be in the decades that I have known and worked with him. He is a true inspiration. He has given his life to trying to make sure that black kids in particular, all kids, but especially black kids, uh, have access to a good quality education that gives them the option to do whatever they want to do over the course of their lives. So it was easy for Michelle to get involved in the board side, for me to get involved in the capital campaign side, and to go to the community and say, our school is doing good work we can serve more families, we can serve them more deeply, we can get better outcomes, but we need the resources to do that. Mm -hmm. And we have been overwhelmed at the unprecedented response that we've gotten from across the community. We're still fundraising, we have already exceeded our $25 million goal, and there's still lots of opportunity out there for us. We've broken ground on the school, our heart rejoices, my heart rejoices that our school is right between Dr. Martin Luther King Mm -hmm. Drive on the east, (laughs) Val Phillips on the west, Garfield, in the historic, you know, Hollywood Park community, diagonal from America Black Holocaust Museum, and the middle of the Bronzeville Cultural Arts and Entertainment District, so all of this whole story is just coming together in a wonderful and a rich way because the capital campaign has performed so well. In addition to building a new high school. We're going to take the existing building. We're going to gut it, blow it out, and create it. Launch a new middle school, a six, seven, and eight as a feeder into high school. Our kids show up in ninth grade with too many deficits, and the answer is to get them younger and younger and younger. And ultimately, we got to be K through twelve. We are non-selective, meaning that we take every kid that comes. We have some rock star A kids that come. We have some kids who come who are at the other end of the spectrum. We take everybody. Mm -hmm. So that means that you know we have to grow our capacity to serve them. But when they're Coming in with those kinds of deficiencies, several grade levels behind in reading, several grade levels behind in math. Many of them on IEP, you know, individual uh, individualized education plans. Lots of cognitive disabilities in the population. It means we got we got up our game. So we couldn't be more excited about this work. It is a means of honoring uh, Dr. Fuller and his his phenomenal legacy in this community and in this country. And uh, people all across the community and the country have really responded positively to supporting that legacy
1: and and most importantly supporting our scholars absolutely i mean Corey, that you have shared a vision for how you really do systemic change (laughs) like it is i mean you talked about this 25 million dollar campaign what this investment is going to be back in a cultural community um And district in our community and what it's going to mean for generations of children to come. And as I've shared, our family has been a beneficiary of this vision. And so the idea of it even expanding, it just warms. Everything inside of me. Well,
2: we we appreciate that. We're glad to have, you know, you as alums, but you've been engaged as a parent and as a supporter, as a donor in helping to build and to advance this work. And we appreciate it. And The school, you know, we've got uh, 10, 11 straight years of 100% of our graduating seniors being accepted into college from Marquette to Madison to Jackson State to FAMU to MATC to Mm -hmm. the Marines. But, you know, 10, 11 straight years of 100% of our graduating seniors Mm -hmm. uh, getting accepted it. So millions of dollars every year in scholarships. You know, I think last class had $7 million mm. or something crazy and in scholarships toward them. So our CEO there, Marcus Robinson, our principal, Judith Parker, are, you know, God bless them. You know, they're doing hard work. Mm-hmm. They're doing, hard work. To they're the doing hard work. They're doing hard work. Yeah. I mean, those folks are amazing. Every time I'm over there and in the building, I'm the tough guy who's always coming in there saying we need more. And I know they hate me for that. But uh, we're all committed to, you know, getting phenomenal outcomes for our kids and their families because they deserve
1: it. Absolutely. Well, I I have to add this anecdote around Dr. Fuller, and you talked about legacy, but you also talked about the profit in his home and where outside uh, Dr. Steve Perry, mm-hmm. who is a renowned education leader doing some amazing work on the East Coast, had reached out to ask if I would help facilitate Mm. him having a speaking opportunity in this event the first person i called was dr Mm. i said okay doc (laughs) i need to know and understand and steve's responses was do you know that he is the guru oh yeah he is the one that we all yeah Take a page out of his book. We are inspired by his leadership and just had, you know, as usual, these phenomenal ways of describing um, Dr. Fuller's leadership and and impact and that legacy. And so I just wanted to to add, I mean, from New
2: York to New Orleans to Denver, I mean, the guy, his speaking calendar is just amazing. And those are, you know, because everybody knows he is he is the man uh, in urban education reform and literally has been at this for decades. Indeed, Milwaukee, he and the late, great uh, Representative Annette Polly Williams, mm-hmm. 33, 34 years ago, created the program that we know as school choice, Milwaukee Parental Choice. And all of these other schools that exist, they all stand on the shoulders of that work done by Dr. Fuller and uh, Representative Annette Polly Williams. And the politics of getting that done in that time uh, was just remarkable. And there would be no St. Marcus no more. Milwaukee College Prep, mm-hmm. no rocket ship, no crystal ray. None of these schools would exist. None of them, St. Aug Prep, none of them would exist yeah. if the voucher program had not been created. And that was really a crusade led by Dr. Fuller and Annette Polly Williams. And that's not just here in Wisconsin. That program has metastasized hmm. across the country. You know, New Orleans used the voucher program to completely remake their school system post-Katrina. Hmm. You know, uh, so all across the country, he he is known and revered, really mm-hmm. revered, uh, as the Griot in urban education reform and I'm honored and, and just proud to call him a friend. I went to his mother's church for many, many years uh, till she passed. His mother was an amazing woman as mm-hmm. well, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. But he's a really special human being. And what amazes me is, you know, I'm often at the school with him. And his ability across multiple generations to connect with these kids, it's magical. It is. You know, this 81-year-old guy, he is relevant. His music, you know, his wardrobe, he's got a shoe collection, a sneaker collection that would be the envy of any NBA all-star, yes. uh, but he's relevant to these kids. And yes. I see him interacting with these 13, 14, 15, mm-hmm. 16-year-olds, and and their respect and reverence for him and, and his relevance to them just leaves me, you know, sort of uh, awestruck. Yeah. So yeah. he is a great man. I love him to death. My wife loves him to death, and uh, we all owe him a great debt. We I, all owe him a great debt.
1: I absolutely agree. And you're right. His ability to connect. I remember my son, London, Doc would share a few texts. I talked to him. I don't need you to tell him that I talked to him. <laughs> We're building our own relationship. Like, I don't need you to get involved. I just want you to know yeah. that he and I I said, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> you all have your space. But yeah. that ability to connect and still keep going with that yeah. impact at 81. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. It, it is really absolutely is. incredible. Well, speaking of incredible, we've talked about passion around HFCA. Something else that we share in common is Milwaukee film, Mm. particularly around the Black Lens program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Arts and culture is my jam, but I do absolutely love film. Yeah you all, you and Michelle, have made a commitment yeah. to the Cultures and Communities yeah. program. Can you talk a little bit about what that that work has meant and where your dedication is there?
2: Yeah, no, so this is interesting. We had been sort of nominally engaged with the Black Film Festival since it launched. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd come and ask for, you know, $1,000 sponsorship or something nominal. And, you know, because it's, black and its arts and culture, which is another philanthropic priority of ours, we sort of supported that. And they'd come, you know, every other year, most years, they'd remember to ask us or not, and then finally, I said, guys, if we're going to do this, let's think of something that's big and something that's impactful. We put that challenge to them, not only at Black Limbs, but at Milwaukee Film. And um Mr. Jackson, their CEO, and, and Mr. Blanks, you know, who's, uh you know, the number two there over at Black Film, they mm-hmm. put their heads together, and they came to Michelle and me with a very substantial uh, proposal. And, you know, we're all about connecting and leveraging. And because we were doing a black high school, moving into the arts and culture district, we said, if you guys can develop a program to bring black film to our high school. Mm-hmm. And we needed something that was bespoke, something that was tailored to our kids. We said we're, we would entertain, you know, a request. So they put together a, a substantial request that we, over multi years, that we agreed to do. Uh, and then after that, they, they came and said, look, it would help us a lot if you all would, you know, lend your brand, your names to a black film in a challenge grant. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what do you have in mind? They said, well, would you, we've not done this really, but would would you be willing to do a $50,000 challenge? So we talked it over and we looked at it in the context of the other commitments we were making to them. We said, sure. You know, we believe in the work they're mm-hmm. doing. It is really, the film festival here in Milwaukee is one of the best in the world. Absolutely. I mean, people don't get how, from a critically acclaimed perspective, how highly really regarded this film festival is, mm-hmm. including the black lens within, mm-hmm. you know, the whole the whole family of, of the festival. So we said, sure, we do this fifty grand challenge. So we committed that. I don't remember the time, but they like blew through it in like a week or mm-hmm. something crazy. So then they came back to us and they said, well, we've exceeded the 50. Would you guys consider doing a 100? And I talked to Michelle and I said, well, our risk is probably not that great because ain't no way in hell they get ready to raise a 100 dollars off of our names. And uh, so we put the 100 up and God, lo and behold, I think they ended up at like 140 or something. Yes. And, uh, so it was, it was just amazing. And it just shows it wasn't really about Michelle and me. It was about raising the visibility of the quality of the work they're doing absolutely, and the community responding Mm -hmm. to that quality. So we were happy to do it. It raised money to support some phenomenal programming and Mm -hmm. some very strong leadership. It advances our partnership with Howard Fuller Collegiate Academy. And we're glad to do it, you know, because the quality is so strong. We believe in in being associated with things that are high quality that affect the African American community in Mm -hmm. particular. And our view is that if we don't, you know, I can't go ask other people to invest if we're not investing Mm -hmm. for first and in mm-hmm. investing at a meaningful level. So uh, we thought it was important uh, for us to model, you know, that behavior and then lots of friends and, uh, you know, sort of responded and they were, they were really successful. So hopefully it'll be a model that they can replicate. I've been pushing the names of some other African-American families to them okay. uh, who, who can who could uh, play that role and, and certainly uh, eclipse what Michelle and I did. But I, I, we were really proud to be associated with their great work.
1: Well, I am certain that they are proud to be associated with the Nettles brand. Let's be clear that that raising of awareness was absolutely aligned to the work, the deep work and commitment that both of you make to this community day in and day out. Corey, as you think about the multitude of challenges, and I call them challenges, people like to talk about Milwaukee is that, We have opportunity to do better. Mm -hmm. What gives you hope every day?
2: Uh, I think what gives me hope every day is these kids, right? Mm -hmm. Because they come here really as innocence, Mm -hmm. right? They didn't create this problem. (laughs) You know, they they didn't create the circumstances that they were born into. But you can see in their eyes, I think, this sort of natural desire for good and for better. And uh, that inspires me. That gives me hope. There's a lot of really well-intended people who want to help, mm-hmm. and they're trying to just figure out where and how to do that. And I've seen it in my work for HFCA. I saw it in the Black Lens, you know, I've seen it in some of my Boys and Girls Club work. You know, at Medical College of Wisconsin, where I was board chair, you know, we got focused on the social determinants of health, and we created uh, a, an endowed chair focused on uh, ethnic disparities in health and the broader community. You know, meaning white people sort of rallied and behind that and supported it. Uh, and the work of Dr. Leonard Agetti at the Medical College of Wisconsin. So part of what gives me hope is, you know, seeing these kids who, who want and who need the support. But it also helps that there are a lot of really good, you know, you might some people use the word allies now, but there are a lot of good people who really want to make a difference and mm-hmm. who want to do the right thing and who are willing to invest alongside you. And that really does give me
1: hope. I love it. I love it. Switching gears a little bit, what is Mr. Corey Nettles? Reading. What's on your reading list?
2: Oh boy, you know I've, I'm an avid, avid, avid reader. So uh, I love reading Frederick Douglass store uh, books, uh, biographies. So you know that's been on my list. I'm reading Obama's first post presidency book. That's on my on my reading mm-hmm. pile. I got a, a big stack of, of stuff that I'm always sort of working my way through. I read tons of articles in the regular periodicals about. Economics, finance, you know macroeconomic trends. I just finished a book by uh, an African American woman, a counselor, therapist in Milwaukee named Dr. Juliette Martin Thomas, mm. who's become a mm-hmm. friend of mine, and she wrote this phenomenal book whose name I'm, it's, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember at the moment. Uh, but Dr. Martin Thomas's book was just a page turner, a real a real thriller, and it was about. Uh, relationships um, and you know familial mm-hmm. relationships across issues of race, across issues of class, across issues of religion. Uh, Mudflower—that's mm-hmm. what it's called. Mm-hmm. The book's called Mudflower, and uh, and I, I read that over the holiday, a uh, post-holiday, post-Christmas, uh, while I was down in San Juan on the beach. So that was that was a ton of fun. So I'm a sort of a history buff, so most of my stuff skews that way. But mm-hmm. but Mudflower, uh, Blooming by Dr. Martin Thomas was a wonderful sort of a deviation from my usual reading stack of stuff. Looking forward to getting back to my Obama book. I'm reading some uh, John Lewis's uh, mm-hmm. biography. There's a phenomenal uh, biographer and historian named John Meacham. Meacham. Yeah, yeah. I, I love Meacham stuff. Well. So I've got like three or four Meacham books on my on my reading pile, mm-hmm. you know, including the John Lewis one that I'm working my way through. He's got a new one on Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. who I also enjoy reading, mostly because of the racial issues that that the uh, Civil War tipped up and mm-hmm. how Lincoln now navigated his way through that I find really interesting and a lot of those themes you know played out on the January 6th riots Mm -hmm. right it was like Mm -hmm. civil war all over again though there are people who are in denial about that so that's the kind of stuff that's that's on my stack that I'm working my way through.
1: I got to go back to the Meacham biography because I I pulled that one early last year because I'm a Meacham fan. Yeah,
2: which one? Because the one on John Lewis?
1: The one on John Lewis. Yeah, that's a a
2: great one. And I've just gotten
1: through maybe the first chapter. So you just reminded me I need to pick that one back up.
2: And Meacham's a phenomenal writer. And John Lewis had an absolutely amazing story. And when you look at where he goes from across the Pettus Bridge and beyond, to being one of the most respected members in Congress, and what everyone said, like the moral authority, the moral conscience uh-huh. of the Congress, I was blessed to meet him, you know, a couple, of few times along the way, and he was without a doubt the most humble, mm. modest, gracious loving person you know that you, yeah. you could ever meet just a really good man mm-hmm. he just exuded that from every pore of his being uh so Meacham does a great job you know he was writing that biography with congressman lewis's support at the end of his life you know because when he right when because he found out and had a very precipitous decline mm-hmm. from cancer but uh it's it's an amazing it's an amazing story it's Indeed. an amazing story
1: final question what's on your playlist? What you banging in the car? You
2: know, uh, it sort of depends a little bit on my mood. I very much listen to, you know, the music of my of my youth, mm-hmm. you know, with my mom. So, you know, obviously I love Motown, mm-hmm. I love Aretha Franklin. One of the kind of contemporary artists who I really love is Gregory Porter. I... And I I love his voice and his musicality, his mm-hmm. musicianship. So I'm a big fan of, of that. Uh, last night, I uh, bought some tickets to Anita Baker's concert in Chicago on June 30th. So she's, she's sort of on tour. I'm a huge Frankie Beverly and Mays fan. <laughs> so I was trying to find him. I love Santana. Santana's playing at the House of Blues, uh, in Vegas, uh, between now and, and June. So I got to get out and see him. I was yeah. talking to this, this CEO I told you about yesterday, who also is a really accomplished musician. And, uh, we, we both described Santana's concert as among the most spiritual experiences um. I've ever had. at a, at a concert so I listen to some of everything I don't listen as much to contemporary stuff You know, I'm on the board for uh, the singer Usher he's got a foundation board out of Atlanta um, and he's doing a show in Vegas now that I just went out to see with him a few several weeks ago now but I don't listen to a lot of Contemporary stuff. I can't listen to Kanye anymore, which I used to love to listen to. He's crazy, you know. He's lost his mind. So I'm not listening to Kanye anymore. It's Some Jay Z. I like mm-hmm. some Jay Z. Mm-hmm. So it's it's eclectic, but it really skews toward you know 70s R and B at the end of the day. That's where mo- most of where I am.
1: Great era, and I I have to lift. I'll be at Anita's concert on June 30th. The I, yes, one in Chicago. Yes. All right. I've been for waiting. <laughs> She's for amazing her to get come closer and. Fun note I had tickets for Earth, Wind, and Fire in Santana. Santana. They got canceled, rescheduled, and canceled year, again. Yeah. was going to surprise my... Well, that was the plan, and it was canceled, and I was devastated. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. right. The week before he was here, he uh, passed out with dehydration yeah. in, in Michigan, uh, Detroit, or someplace like that. But he's well, and he's in Vegas. He does these long, extended engagements at House of Blues. So he's easy to see there, and he is just phenomenal. He's absolutely phenomenal. So I'm a huge Santana fan and uh, I haven't locked that one into my calendar yet, but I will make a weekend trip out to Vegas and see him at House of Blues. So that's the kind of stuff
1: I like. I love it. Corey, thank you.
2: This was fun. Thank you. Appreciate you including me. Thank, and thanks. 14 years, amazing. You know, there are not a lot of black businesses that make 14 years. You're in a very difficult space, you know, in the comm space and helping people tell their stories and advance their brand. So, and, you know, you're so extremely well thought of. Athena Communications extremely well thought of. You know, I I'm, I touch the corporate community people who are clients of yours on that side, but, you know, people all across the community know that you're one of theirs. And, you know, we all just sort of lift you up and, and have a tremendous degree of for for what you do, but as I often tell people, more important than what you do is often how you do, and uh, your how is real strong. So thanks for what you're doing, and Godspeed on the next 14 years.
1: Thank you, Corey. I really appreciate this, and I wanted to close out with all the accolades for you, yeah. <laughs> which was to appreciate you yeah. for um, not only your personal uh, championship of me and support, but your incredible vision and commitment to this community that is a model for all of us, I'm hoping that you are understanding that you need all the flowers right now. Not that you <laughs> need, um, but I am committed to sharing that. That I know it's not easy every day, but you inspire so many of us to continue to continue the fight, to continue to be optimistic on days that it can be really challenging to show up in spaces that you know aren't going to always be receptive yeah. <laughs> and evil, even playing fields. But the dedication to doing what seems like the impossible, you embody that. You and Michelle. Um, So thank you. Thank you for your time today. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate you. I do. Thank you. And for all of you who continue to listen to On the Edge of Equity, until next time.
0: Thank you for joining us on the Edge of Equity. Please join our email list at info at com so you don't miss a single episode. The link is also in the show notes. You can also support the show by sharing it on social media with your personal and professional networks, suggesting guests and topics for us to spotlight, and engaging in crucial conversations about systems change.